You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Everybody, welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for tuning in to the show. If you've got any questions or you want to see what's going on with me, you can go to the website, NowhereToRunRadio.com. There you'll find links to the email list, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff is there, NowhereToRunRadio.com. Okay, so I've got a really great show. I've got an interview that I just got done doing with Andrew Hoffman, who is an author and a friend, and uh, he basically gave the presentation that he gave at the Politics of Religion Conference. And so I'll play that here in just a minute and explain a little more about it, making a movie about that right now that should come out at the exact same time as the podcast, hopefully. So that's going to be great. That's coming up here in just a second. And But in the meantime, let me just talk real quick about some upcoming projects and things. I've got the presentation for youth, a movie slash presentation that's coming out. I just finished it today as far as the, the material. Should make it into a movie, record it. Should be out early next week, probably. And that'll be a great thing. It's called Demystifying the Occult. It ended up being something I think is going to be good for a lot of people, not just for youth. I was sort of talking to youth, but I think in doing so, um, I made it a little more easy to understand, as well as hitting a lot of cultural pop topics that I haven't hit before, like you know vampires and those kinds of things. So, um, So that'll be cool. That's coming out hopefully next week. And... Um, also sort of shifted my focus was, you know, kind of talking a lot about prophecy and stuff like that. And, you know, I still talk about certain uh, things, particularly the pre-wrath thing. I'm, I'm still very much, uh, interested in, in, um, in talking about that and, and, and stuff like that. But as far as the rest of the stuff, I think I'm going to shift my focus mostly towards evangelistic stuff, particularly the sleep paralysis issue. Man, that issue is like the Wild West as far as research goes. I've been looking into that yesterday, reading a lot of peer-reviewed papers and stuff about it, and just like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do here. There's so much work that needs to be done in regard to sleep paralysis. And, of course, a lot of people have sleep paralysis, and and when they go online and they're looking for solutions to it, they're just being told the most ridiculous things in the world, not just about what it is or what causes it, but also... Um, they're, instead of hearing uh, solid evidence to what it is, they're hearing that they need to go further in, that they need to start trying to astral project instead, you know, start embracing it. It's like the worst thing you could be doing. Um, so hopefully we're going to, Mike and I, uh, who uh, sort of co-run uh, uh, StopSleepParalysis.org, are going to really step up our sleep paralysis game and have been the last few weeks. Uh, if you check out the website, stopsleepparalysis.org, it's a totally new website. At first, I sort of modified it a little bit, but then just scrapped it all and put up a whole new website, new sections, the blog's running again, everything is just all new and shiny at, at the Stop Sleep Paralysis site. But what I need from you guys is your testimonies. It's sort of following the the uh, model of the guys over there at Alien Resistance, Guy Malone, Joe Jordan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those guys uh, make have made a big deal out of the testimonies of people, and that really is the the proof in a lot of ways. So, if you have a testimony about sleep paralysis in which the name and authority of Jesus stopped it, or totally overcame it, or, or in any way anything like that, your testimony is really, really important. I can't oh, I can't stress that your testimony is 
crucial uh, because we can do a lot of things with it. We can uh, get it on YouTube. We can saturate YouTube with testimonies about sleep paralysis because right now YouTube is saturated with the most awful nonsense uh, about what what you should do if you have it. It's just awful to, to see a lot of the stuff that's out there. Um, so we need your testimonies, whether it's by video, a video would be preferable. Um, if you did it, put it on a YouTube channel, I can, I can download it there, link it, whatever you want me to do. If you do an audio, that's good too. It doesn't have to be a long audio. These, you just have to tell about your experience. You know, maybe two minutes could be, it could be 10 minutes. It could be whatever it takes to tell your story about sleep paralysis and, you know, give as much detail as you want to. Um, the more the merrier, I guess, but, we need those. If it's written testimonies, we need those too. We need whatever form that you feel comfortable with. Videos being the best, audio being second best, written being uh, you know really good, still good. So please, 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 if you feel at all that your tes- testimony is important to this discussion, please send it to me at uh, Nowhere to Run Radio is fine, or you can go to StopSleepParalysis.org and send it through the uh, the form letter there. But you probably won't be able to attach a file on the Stop Sleep Paralysis site. So just go to my site, NowhereToRunRadio.com, send it to me directly, my email, NowhereToRunRadio. Uh, no, it's my email is NowhereToRun1984 at gmail.com. Okay, so please, please, please do that. I'm thinking very, very seriously also about doing a documentary film about sleep paralysis, looking into it yesterday and all the peer-reviewed stuff. It's like there is just so much evidence there's so much to talk about and nobody's talking about it and one other thing if somebody has access to if they're a medical doctor or something and they have access to a lot of the medical journal papers and stuff like that one of these if you have access to any one of these medical journal sites uh, i would love to know especially one that has like access to a lot of it i don't think pubmed actually has anything but abstracts in it if it does I would love that. If anybody can let me borrow or put me on a thing or whatever to be able to get a hold of some of these uh, peer-reviewed papers because I just can't seem to do it and they're cost-like, just it's kind of cost-prohibitive to, to, to do. So anyway, um, that's that. Let's talk about Andrew Hoffman. I'll remind you about that at the end of the uh, show. Okay, so Andrew Hoffman did a really great presentation at the Politics of Religion conference about propaganda. He kind of he kind of overviews what propaganda is, how it started, you know, a lot of the you know famous propaganda types of things, and then really relates it to us. Uh, we'll start. You'll start to develop an eye for propaganda, and it's really important. And he explains why, especially for Christians. At the end of it, it really sort of wraps it up. And really, throughout the course of it, he's, he talks about it in, in terms of Christian, uh, what what a Christian needs to know about it, and these kinds of things. But it really is applicable to everybody. He's an author. He wrote the book The New World Order and the Eugenics Wars: A Christian Perspective, and it's just a really great book to give to somebody who is a Christian, but they don't know anything about the New World Order or whatever. And he puts it out in a really easy to digest, well. Uh, cited way. My wife read it the other day, and she was just struck by the not not just the intense amount of information in it, but really the the way it was presented in a really gentle way. And so, I would really encourage this book. I'll put a link to it on my recommended book section on my website. Is also on the sidebar there. The New World Order and the Eugenics Wars: A Christian Perspective, also available in a Kindle edition. So check that out there. I'll put the link there and also in the video. And like I said, there is a video coming out here, so if you'd prefer to watch this on a video, you can download that or watch it on YouTube as well. Okay, here is Andrew Hoffman with his presentation about propaganda. All right, the presentation is called Mass Propaganda, 
How Mass Media and Public Relations Creates a False Reality. Okay, and the reason I started uh, researching this topic uh, was realizing when I first started you know, researching topics that I had never even heard about or, or seen alternative views on, uh, such as 9-11 um, or other you know, historical events, I realized how much I didn't know. So the idea that um, we, we don't know for sure uh, the, world, the way the world is. So that motivated me to, to look into it. Uh, and then I was also curious about the effect of mass media. This is kind of the first couple generations that have been thoroughly doused in television and other forms of, of mass media. And I just wanted to know what effect that, that has had. Uh, and the, the basis for it is a, a search for truth. Um, if, if the reality as presented on TV isn't real, then obviously we need, need to figure out what is. Okay, and we'll start out with just some quotes about propaganda. Uh, the new antidote to willfulness is propaganda. If the mass will be free of iron, it must accept its chains of silver. If it will not love, honor, and obey, it must not expect to, to escape seduction. From Harold Laswell. And some, some definitions. Uh, the insertion between man and his environment of a pseudo-environment or fake environment, what is called the adjustment of man to his environment, takes place through the medium of fictions from Walter Lippmann back in 1921. Uh, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power in our country. It's Edward Bernays. You'll hear his name a lot. Uh, in, in this era, and this is a more modern quote, in this era of exploding media technologies, there is no truth except the truth you create for yourself. From Richard Edelman of Edelman Worldwide, uh, they're a big PR firm. And that's a good quote to keep in mind for anything you see on television, that the people that are creating it have that view of truth and of reality. Okay, more definitions. Uh, propaganda is the deliberate, systematic attempt to shape perceptions, manipulate cognitions, and direct behavior to achieve a response that furthers the desired intent of the propagandist. And uh, propaganda is neutrally defined as a, as a systematic form of purposeful persuasion that attempts to influence the emotions, attitudes, opinions, and actions of a specified target audiences for ideological, political, or commercial purposes through the controlled transmission of one-sided messages, which may or may not be factual via mass and direct media channels. Okay, and this definition, propaganda is the product of intellectual work that is itself highly organized. It aims at persuading large masses of people about the virtues of some organization, cause, or person, and its success or failure depends on how well it captures, expresses, and then rechannels specific existing sentiments. It's Robert Jackal. Another couple of definitions. Propaganda is a set of methods employed by an organized group that wants to bring about the active or passive participation in its actions of a mass of individuals, psychologically unified through psychological manipulations and incorporated in an organization. Okay, and then Ilu will also kind of separate political propaganda and sociological propaganda. 
and it says, uh, public opinion always rests on problems that do not correspond to reality. And if you've, if you've done your research on the, the internet or elsewhere about issues that are in the news, you'll realize that that's definitely true. What, what we're told is the justification for things is hardly ever the, the actual reason for it. And then uh, propaganda can exist only in societies in which secondhand opinion definitely dominates primary opinion. And what that means is that uh, propaganda only works if you get your news secondhand rather than firsthand. So you're getting your news from television or radio or, or the newspaper rather than if you were out in the woods somewhere and didn't have access to those things, propaganda uh, would be impossible. Uh, if the ruler wants to play the game by himself and follow secret policies, he must present a decoy to the mass. He cannot escape the mass, but he can draw between himself and that mass an invisible curtain, a screen, on which the mass will see projected the image of some politics, while the real politics are being made behind it. And the, the point of propaganda is to make the masses demand of the government what the government has already decided to do. Okay, so to kind of boil all that down, uh, my own personal definition for propaganda is propaganda is the creation of a false reality for the purpose of manipulating human action. Okay, kind of background events that were important for the creation of propaganda, uh, the Industrial Revolution, you had people moving to cities, you had uh, the man taken out of the household, um, and you had mass products being produced, and that obviously uh, laid the groundwork for needing mass numbers of people to buy the same products. Uh, World War One. Every book on propaganda talks a lot about World War One, especially the American propaganda uh, operation, which is recognized as as one of the uh, best early examples of mass scale propaganda the 1920s, which was just taking those same methods and applying them mainly to for commercial purposes or to get people to buy uh, products and invest in things and what have you. Uh, then the Great Depression, after the bubble of the 1920s burst, you had the Great Depression and government uh, relied on large amounts of propaganda to try to convince people that government was the the solution to all their problems. Uh, World War II, I won't cover it too much in this presentation, but there is lots of, um, this is war movies and um, kind of the golden age of the, the propaganda film. And then uh, kind of some overall things, the shift from print-based to image-based culture. If you look at the difference in political discourse from, let's say, the 18th century colonial America to current-day America with, you know, everything's just sound bites and images, it's drastically different. Uh, the widespread adoption of television has obviously had a huge impact both on our political system and just our perception of reality. And then the Internet, um, I would like to think that the Internet is having an effect counter to the overall propaganda. Um, but that's certainly arguable. 
uh, the philosophical roots of propaganda, two key things, relativism and pragmatism. Uh, first of all, relativism, the idea that there is no God, therefore there is no basis for absolute truth. Truth becomes dependent on the situation and the perspective of those involved. And you'll hear that a lot from propagandists and from PR people, that they're just trying to present the truth according to their client or according to the interests that they represent. The idea that uh, the truth is not absolute, that it's relative, uh, depending on who's looking at it and from what angle they're looking at it from. And second of all, pragmatism. Uh, two proponents of that were John Dewey and William James. And uh, I thought this was an interesting quote. Uh, Dewey proposed to replace the notion of truth with the notion of warranted assertability. Any belief which can be claimed to bring useful consequences may acquire warranted assertability on that ground alone. So the idea is it doesn't have to actually be true. It just has to be a statement that you can provide evidence for. And if, if you've uh, been to college and written essays, you know that's what professors ask for. They say, oh, it doesn't matter what argument you choose, uh, you just have to support it. So this is the kind of the John Dewey approach. Okay. And one more thing on uh, John Dewey and, and pragmatism. Notice that even if the propagandist or the PR person knows something is false, if they believe that someone seeing that and believing in a certain thing will bring about a positive effect, that justifies uh, the presentation of the lie, basically. So in other words, if you're, if you're trying to get people to believe that there's WMDs in Iraq because uh, you think the outcome of that belief will lead to something positive, then you are justified in presenting it, even if you know that it's not true. And necessary prerequisites to propaganda. Uh, number one, the conditioned reflex. This is training so that certain words, signs, symbols, persons, facts, etc., cause identical reactions. And I'm getting this from the work of Elul. Um, and second of all, the myth. It's an all-encompassing, activating image, a sort of vision of desirable objectives that have lost their material, practical character, and have become strongly colored overwhelming, all-encompassing, and which displace from the conscious all that is not related to it. Both must be constant in order to prepare people to respond readily to active propaganda that requires a certain action. So think of the, the condition reflex and the myth as kind of background uh, propaganda that's always going on and getting people to support a war or whatever the establishment wants them to do at the time. Uh, examples, the American flag, national anthem, military salute, Osama bin Laden, 9-11, etc. You have all these things. There are specific actions um, or specific reactions that uh, you are supposed to have when you see those things. Okay. And as far as the overall myth is concerned, uh, Elul argues that the two great fundamental myths are science and history, okay? And so these are things that are not necessarily true, but the belief in them is key to propaganda. And second of all, based on them are the collective myths that are man's principal orientations. 
the myth of work, the myth of happiness, the myth of the nation, the myth of youth, and the myth of the hero. It's uh, the idea that um, you, you see the myth of work that was especially prevalent in, in communist countries. You know, they would would tell people, oh, you know, work will um, make you happy. And obviously, in more capitalistic countries, work is, is the, if you work hard, you're supposed to attain wealth and, and what have you. Um, and again, happiness, myth of the nation, myth of youth. You can see all that both in advertising and in just our, our general culture. Okay, this four sociological presuppositions for propaganda. All propaganda must build on and use these myths or it will not be successful. Number one, man's aim in life is happiness. Number two, man is naturally good. Number three, history develops an endless progress. And number four, everything is matter. And a couple of questions to consider, are these myths in conflict with Christianity? And obviously, they, they definitely are, um, as far as biblical Christianity goes. Because man's aim in life is not happiness, according to the Bible. Uh, it's the glorification of God. Uh, number two, man is naturally good. Definitely not. Man is naturally sinful. Uh, man has a sin nature. Three, history develops an endless progress. No, the kind of the biblical view of history is... Um, is not endless progress. It's that human nature stays the same, um, and obviously God's agenda will, will get fulfilled in the end, but that doesn't mean that um, history is endless progress. And number four, obviously, everything is matter is very contradictory to any religious system, really, the idea that there's a spiritual reality. And the last one, does our society reflect these myths? And does the modern church? And I would say uh, they come much closer to it than the biblical view of of reality. Okay, we'll take a look at some famous propaganda campaigns, uh, including the CPI and World War One. Uh, just a little quote: "Propaganda reveals our hoaxes from which we can no longer escape." In other words, they have uh, they're hoaxes in that they're not real and that people are trying to convince us of something, but we can't escape from them because it's it's become its own false reality. Uh, first, World War One and the Creel Committee, which was also called the CPI or the Committee on Public Information. It was established by Executive Fiat by Woodrow Wilson uh, and George Creel, who it's named after, was the leader of it. And he started out as a muckraking journalist, and he went. He ended up creating a government propaganda campaign that was the biggest in world history at the time, and it was in support of World War I. Uh, the war was framed as a crusade for democratic ideals and traditions threatened by autocracy. Okay. One of the propaganda methods they had uh, people they called four-minute men give speeches in movie houses and other places, uh, obviously approximately four-minute speeches, and they've gone back and figured out that there were approximately 755,190 speeches given in America during this time, um, and they would have specific 
talking points and structures for the speeches, and then they could add kind of their own twist on it if they wanted to. Uh, political cartoons, cartoons in the division of pictorial publicity. They would send out um, ideas or themes that they wanted cartoonists to focus on for that particular day or week, and then whichever cartoons you know worked the best or uh, in the in the opinion of the government committee would then get wider wider syndication. The division of films uh, covered the machinery of war, social dimensions of army life, and there were also feature films. And this was it was important during World War One, but the the films were um, far more important during World War Two. Also, American commercial films shown overseas came with the requirement that CPI propaganda films also be shown. So if you wanted your Charlie Chaplin film, you also had to show the CPI propaganda film. Um, the CPI Division of Advertising received donated space from over 800 newspapers and publications. Uh, they promoted the Spies and Lies campaign, the basic idea of which was if you question the need for the war, um, you were probably a spy, and if you said anything negative about what was happening in the war, um, you know, maybe your son had died and you complained about that or what have you, um, again, it was evidence that you were a spy and you were spreading enemy lies. Uh, the war reported in American newspapers what was the war that the CPI wanted the American people to see, a moral struggle against cruel tyranny, barbarity, and, and imperialist expansion with no hint of commercial motivation. And of course, if you read uh, Smedley Butler's book, War is a Racket, he talks about how many people made uh, lots of money off of World War I. So commercial motivation was definitely one of the driving factors. Now, the CPI developed the centralized and standardized techniques of truly mass communication. Um, and other events that they had, July 4th, 1918, and the loyalty demonstrations. These were emphasized especially in immigrant communities as a chance to show loyalty to America. And obviously, we, we still have July 4th uh, celebrations in pretty much every town in America today. And the aftermath of the CPI, struck by the gullibility of the public, Experts with mass symbols wondered whether propaganda might work as well in peacetime as it had during the Great War. And the, the legacy, you can pick up your morning paper, pick up the papers that most pride themselves on being the first sources of news, and if you read them with the practiced eye of the publicist or propagandist, you will find that perhaps 60% of all the news is propaganda. It's Carl Bjorn and 1935, he was a uh, publicist. And uh, today, public relations practitioners generally estimate the amount of place news to be 80% of all that is printed or appears on the electronic media. So we've gone from 60 to 80% by the, those estimates. So you see that there's more propaganda today, not less. All right, another famous uh, propagandist, uh, Goebbels, and the main aim of Nazi propaganda was to achieve the identification of the party, the Nazi party, with the state, according to Mr. Zeman. 
centralization of all propaganda activities implied for Goebbels the elimination of every alternative source of information. So he wanted all information coming from one place. The editors acted as censors. Uh, they knew that they could lose government funding or lose uh, government licenses if their papers printed anything uh, against the Nazi party. So they acted as their own censors. No, there didn't have to be actual government censors in place. That's very much like the American system today where, you know, if, you, if you're the editor for the Washington Post, you know that if you let stuff through that shouldn't be getting through, uh, your writers will lose their sources in the government. Uh, film companies subsidized and taken over by the state. So it started out with uh, getting money from the state and then eventually the state just openly ran them. Goebbels preferred the use of news over overt propaganda like editorials. Um, and this, this comes from Leonard W. Dube in 1950, put together a list of what he considered to be Goebbels' principles, and he did this by kind of analyzing all the World War II or all the Nazi propaganda pre and during World War II. Uh, principle seven, credibility alone must determine whether propaganda output should be true or false. An example of this was uh, General Rommel. Um, was not in Africa when the German forces were defeated, but Goebbels did not use that as an excuse, uh, even though it was even though it was true, because he knew that the people believed Rommel had been in Africa and wouldn't believe that he had not that he had left just before the the final battle there. And um, so that's an example. He refused to let he censored something that was true and that uh, ostensibly would be beneficial to their propaganda effort because he didn't think people would believe it. So something can be credible or seem to be true and not be true or vice versa. Uh, moving on, quote from Goebbels himself, news policy is a weapon of war. Its purpose is to wage war and not to give out information. Uh, just some little tactics that he used. He used the drunken uh, journalist technique where he had uh, basic spies basically, basically pretend to be drunken journalists, go to neutral countries, and spill what were supposedly secrets about the Nazi regime to um, you know people that would, would get the news back to the Russians or what, what have you. Um, but obviously they they were spreading disinformation. And he would also use similar methods uh, to get out information that he knew would not be believed if it came directly from the government. So use black propaganda, meaning that the source of the propaganda was hidden and it was also not true. Uh, whoever speaks the first word to the world is always right. So the importance of getting <clears throat> the first, uh, the official story out to the world right away. And principle 14, propaganda must label events and people with distinctive phrases or slogans. Um, and this should bring very currently true. Um, the first thing, even if it's a natural disaster, news stations have to come up with a, a specific name for it. 
um, or if it's a war or anything else, there's a distinctive phrase or slogan that accompanies it, and they'll use that over and over again whenever they refer to it. Um, and those phrases or slogans have a couple characteristics. Number one, they must evoke desired responses that the audience previously possesses. Number two, they must be capable of being easily learned. <clears throat> Three, they must be utilized again and again, but only in appropriate situations. And four, they must be boomerang proof. In other words, you can't turn it around and use it against the people who originally used it. <clears throat> okay, principle 16. Propaganda to the home front must create an optimum anxiety level. So you want them anxious enough to be worried and to be paying attention uh, to what you want them paying attention to, but not so worried that they give up or, you know, they stop going to work or things like that. So, you know, today we see that, you know, whatever the terror threat level is, they want people aware of it and afraid of it, but not so afraid of it that they're not, uh, you know, economically active. Principle 18, propaganda must facilitate the displacement of aggression by specifying the targets for hatred. And for Goebbels, <clears throat> the United States and Great Britain uh, were not the main targets of his wrath. It was mainly Russians, uh, Jews, and what have you. And it's important to remember that Hitler got some of his race theory from British and American eugenicists, and Goebbels got some of his propaganda tricks from Edward Bernays. And <clears throat> he talked about reading Bernays' books. So let's look at Edward Bernays. Uh, some quotes from him. It says, propaganda is the executive arm of the invisible government. So it's the way that the powers <clears throat> behind the scenes get what they want done. Second one, in order for it to respond appropriately, Bernays maintained that the public must have reality pre-digested for it. So you don't give people the facts and let them decide for themselves. You let them know exactly what you want them to think and, and believe. <clears throat> of course, if you do it the right way, people think that they're making up their own opinions. All right, and again, Repeatedly, Bernays maintained that although most people respond to their world instinctively without that, there exists an intelligent few who have been charged with the responsibility of contemplating and influencing the tide of history. So it's a very elitist attitude, and you see that a lot uh, in propaganda and PR. Bernays described public relations as a response to a trans-historic concern. The requirement for those people in power to shape the attitudes of the general population. Okay. And this is from an Edward L. Bernays advertisement in the New York Times. It says, the social sciences can serve industry's human relationships in the same way that physical sciences serve industry's technological progress. And Bernays uh, extended the Bill of Rights to include the right of persuasion, which is very kind of contradictory, but there you have it. Um, Bernays, some of his famous advertising campaigns and, and propaganda campaigns were for Lucky Strike cigarettes, uh, including the slogan, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet. 
he got the <clears throat> Mr. Hill to uh, sponsor research on the effects of excessive sugar to, to help <laughs> with that campaign. Uh, the Torches of Freedom Parade, some people have heard of that, where he had uh, suffragettes march for the right to vote, and he had them all smoking cigarettes, and that was to break the taboo that women should not smoke in public. And um, so he got smoking associated with the right to vote and uh, women's rights and what have you. And it caused a huge controversy, but of course also sold a lot of cigarettes. And for the Green Ball, uh, his research showed that people weren't buying, women in particular weren't buying Lucky Strike cigarettes because the color green clashed with their outfits. So he tried to get uh, then to change their packaging, they wouldn't do that. So instead he uh, hosted the green ball where he got fashion designers in Paris to design lots of things in green and required that all the women wear green dresses to the event. And then, of course, they passed out Lucky Strike cigarettes. And that was an attempt to kind of form the fashion trends for the following years. And this is what Bernays said about that experience. He says, age-old customs I learned could be broken down by a dramatic appeal disseminated by the network of media. Uh, my work had shown me that fashions seldom happen fortuitously. They follow trends. A planned event of importance can play a part in affecting these trends. And we must recognize the significance of modern communications not only as a highly organized mechanical web, but as a potent force for social good or possible evil. And to influence the public, the engineer of consent works with and through group leaders and opinion molders on every level. And that's, he, he had a very hierarchical view of the world, and he believed if he could uh, propagandize the leaders, whether it was, you know, teachers or doctors or whatever level, he saw that as uh, having a big impact on the, the mass population. Uh, primarily, the engineer of consent must create news. News is not an inanimate thing. It is an overt act that makes news, and news in turn shapes the attitudes and actions of people. Okay, and you would think because you see the same five stories on the evening news that those must have been the five most important stories of the day, but obviously Bernays is saying, no, it's, it's, they've been created uh, oftentimes, or at least the, the angle that they are reported on is, is intentional. Uh, newsworthy events involving people usually do not happen by accident. They are planned deliberately to accomplish a purpose, to influence ideas and actions. Okay, uh, just a few other Bernays campaigns. Bernays was hired by uh, Bacon, a bacon maker, and he used a poll of doctors that said they recommended a hearty breakfast and then he would plaster the picture of bacon and eggs next to that. Um, so people would associate hearty breakfast with bacon and eggs. Um, and the implied idea that doctors had recommended the eating of bacon, which they hadn't actually done, but that was the impression that was put out there. Um, Bernays was hired by a hairnet manufacturer because women were wearing their hair shorter and not using hairnets. And he got government to require hairnets 
in food manufacturing and other areas and created a whole new uh, market segment for the, the manufacturer. Um, he was hired by Parker & Gamble for the to promote soap. Obviously, kids didn't especially like soap. So what he did was start the ivory soap carving contest where they the kids could carve a sculpture out of a bar of soap. And uh, obviously to do that, they had to buy the soap in the first place. So this is a millions and millions of bars of soap were sold so people could participate in the contest. Um, also, he was hired by Mack Trucks. They were getting kind of uh, taken over by the railroads. The railroads were more effective distributing materials. And so he saw that in order for uh, Mack trucks to regain market share, there needed to be a national highway system. So he started lobbying for that at the government level. And of course, during the uh, Great Depression, part of the New Deal programs were the, the national highway system. <clears throat> Uh, he kind of pioneered the product placement for Cartier, uh, who was a jeweler. And in the film 50 Million Frenchmen, he arranged it so that this, the star of the, or the main character in the film sang a song about Cartier, about getting uh, a diamond from Cartier. And of course, obviously that had a, a big impact on sales. Uh, he was hired by beer manufacturers who were fighting off prohibition-type legislation, and he got them to kind of join join with the prohibitionists and to promote beer as the beverage of moderation. So, in other words, you know, don't don't drink hard alcohol, just drink beer. That's that's the moderate beverage. So, kind of like a, a compromise. So, uh, I was hired by Bank of America to get bank regulators in the government to allow branch banking, which they had been previously hesitant to do. And he was successful, obviously, in doing that. Um, Lights Golden Jubilee was the celebration of the 100-year um, anniversary of the light bulb. Um, they had, or sorry, the 50th anniversary of the light bulb. They had Edison. Uh, the whole thing was sponsored by Henry Ford, which was a little ironic with uh, Ford and Bernays kind of working on the same project because Ford was obviously was very anti-Semitic. Um, Bernays was hired by Calvin Coolidge, and one of the first things he did was have uh, a lot of celebrities invited to the White House for breakfast, and this provided newspapers with material to kind of uh, write about the, the more human side of Calvin Coolidge because the perception of him was very, uh, as a very kind of grumpy old man. Uh, so overall, Bernays believed that we must be manipulative in order to save democracy, that we have to burn the village in order to save it. Okay, and Bernays also pioneered the use of front groups or groups uh, that would present themselves as independent, but were in reality furthering the agenda of uh, someone from behind the scene. Uh, some of the other big contracts Bernays had were with United Fruit. Uh, United Fruit had 
some of their land in Guatemala seized by the government there, by kind of a, a socialist government. So Bernays um, promoted intervention by the uh, American military under the pretext that it was going to be a communist takeover and uh, like a Russian stronghold where there really wasn't any evidence that the uh, Soviet Union was involved, but that was the, the supposed threat. The Red Menace was used to, to get troops down there and protect the uh, interests of United Fruits. Also, that's where the phrase Banana Republic comes from. Just some weird facts about Bernays. Uh, Bernays' father, Eli, was married to Sigmund Freud's younger sister. Sigmund Freud was married to Eli Bernays' younger sister, which means that uh, Bernays was the nephew of Freud twice over. And then there's this little uh, gem. This is, comes from the diary of uh, Bernays' wife. Anna Freud sometimes flirts with E, or Eddie Bernays, like a little girl, a moment later like a tired old woman, terribly pleased to see E, who patted her hand, kissed her, and treated her like a child. No one has ever done that to her before, I suppose, and she melted and expanded. I never flirt, she said when I asked, but she does flirt with E. They decided their affection was incestuous, double cousins. E said, it's interesting to experiment in this phase of genetics. Anna said, Academically or practically, which is kind of a, a disturbing little uh, incident there. Okay, moving on. Ivy Lee, and this is um, Edward Bernays called himself the grandfather of public or the father of public relations, uh, but historians are kind of split. They give him a lot of credit, but also Ivy Lee was was very influential as well. Um, and you won't find as many kind of gotcha quotes like you will from Edward Bernays. Um, he used nicer rhetoric about telling the truth and what have you, but his actions definitely don't match that. He was a the son of a conservative Georgia minister. He started out as a newspaper uh, reporter, but he turned PR man in 1903, so actually before Bernays was into it. I uh, went to work for John B. Rockefeller in 1914 after the Lobo massacre, and the Rockefeller account was was uh, his biggest account from then on. From then on. Uh, and he he produced um, a bulletin called "Facts Concerning the Strike in Colorado for Industrial Freedom." So he he kind of flipped it around. So instead of workers, you know, striking for uh, their own wages and what have you, he he made the, he tried to make the issue about industrial freedom, about the right to conduct business. Uh, he was called to testify in front of Congress in 1915. Because of all his uh, deceptions regarding the Ludlow Massacre, and this is from Stuart Ewen, kind of a summary of his testimony, uh, implicit within Lee's testimony, striking in its tone of ethical detachment, or set of what today have become commonplace presuppositions of public relations practice. If suitable facts could be assembled, assembled and then projected onto the vast amphitheater of public consciousness, he reasoned they could become truth. 
So that's a very important idea. If you can get a few facts together and create a whole other story that does not match reality, but that can look like reality, it is that that can become truth or become the true story, even though it doesn't match what actually happened. And that's what public relations does. Uh, George Creel called him Poison Ivy, and that was kind of a, a nickname that stuck with him. R.C. George Creel then start, stopped being a muckraker and started being a propagandist himself. Um, he was not entirely successful in rehabilitating Rockefeller's image, uh, even though he did little stunts like having Rockefeller hand out nickels to children um, and have him schedule golf matches with reporters so he would get kind of uh, puff pieces written about him. Uh, Lee also represented IG Farben. They worked closely with the with Rockefeller, so it's somewhat natural that he would represent them. He apparently didn't have any uh, moral problems with doing so. Uh, since crowds do not reason, they can only be organized and stimulated through symbols and phrases. It's a very common belief in uh, PR and propaganda circles, this idea of people kind of being a dumb, massive herd that can be uh, directed pretty much any way you want, except by actually reasoning with them. Uh, Lee also worked for Lucky Strike and conducted campaigns encouraging women to smoke. He created Betty Crocker and Gold Medal Flower. Uh, he was a pioneering fundraiser, uh, in particular for Princeton University, where he introduced the idea of using gifts from the little person. So, the idea of getting lots of small donations instead of relying just on um, big donations from uh, just a few rich people. Quotes about Ivy Lee. Uh, Ivy Lee was an internationalist in an America that was still isolationist. That's Scott Cutlip. He's a PR historian. Um, he was accused of taking money from the USSR. He was accused of being a propagandist for the Nazis, uh, of being anti-Semitic and other serious charges. Lee met with Hitler, Goebbels, and others. Lee's son was paid $33,000 in Berlin. Um, however, overall, Lee's model for public relations, staying behind the scenes and working mainly through front groups and third parties, is the standard model today. So in that way, Ivy Lee was more influential than Bernays because there's no one uh, in the PR community today really self-promotes the way that Bernays did. Um, it's much more like Ivy League where you never hear about the PR company, um, even though their work is everywhere and there's, there are these massive organizations. Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, quotes about propaganda from Jockey Lule. Man has doubtless made more comfortable by techniques of human relations, but these techniques are wholly oriented toward compelling man to submit to forced labor. That comes from the technological society. Uh, there is no such thing as purely objective information. And propaganda must become as natural as air or food. It must proceed by psychological inhibition and the least possible shock. The individual is then able to declare in all honesty that no such thing as propaganda exists. In fact, however, he has been absorbed by it that he is literally no longer able to see the truth. 
And this is kind of the phenomenon uh, we see in the, the world today where people, if kind of from the outside looking in, you know, maybe if you've kind of woken up to certain issues, uh, you know, and I think we're all still blind in certain other areas, but sometimes you can see, you know, how is that person so blind to it? You know, they're, they're lying and they're not lying. They, they truly believe, uh, you know, that there were weapons of mass destruction found and they're, they're just keeping them secret or, you know, whatever excuse um, that they need to come up with to support uh, the government lie that they believed in in the first place. Okay. Uh, the more quotes, the prolonged and hypnotic repetition of the same complex of ideas, the same images, and the same rumors conditions man for the assimilation of his nature to propaganda. Okay, so if you've got these same images repeating over and over again, same ideas, same buzzwords, um, that's why take an event like 9-11 and you always see the same image of the plane hitting the tower and then the tower's collapsing. Propaganda offers people a collective scapegoat to which they are able to transfer evil and sin, thereby feeling justified, authenticated, and purified. Moreover, the introduction of scapegoats means that conflict is no longer on a social or political plane, but on a moral plane of good and evil. So you've got the idea that they, um, that propaganda uh, kind of sears our consciences to the point where we think, um, you know, that our country is doing good things or, or, you know, we personally are doing good things when actually just the opposite is going on. Some effects of propaganda, however, are already clear. The critical faculty has been suppressed by the creation of collective passions. Secondly, a good, uh, good social conscience appears with the suppression of the critical faculty. Uh, technique provides justification to everybody and gives all men the conviction that their actions are just good and in the spirit of truth. Propaganda technique, moreover, creates a new sphere of the sacred. When there is propaganda, we are no longer able to evaluate certain questions or even discuss them. A series of protective reflexes organized by technique immediately intervene. A third consequence of technical propaganda manipulations is the creation of an abstract universe representing a complete reconstruction of reality in the minds of its citizens. Men fashion images of things, events, and people which may not reflect reality but which are truer than reality. These images are based on news items which, as is the case in much of the world, are faked. Their purpose is to form rather than inform. And this is kind of the false reality that I wanted to explore. And E. Lewis is recognizing this back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, man will be led to act from real motives that are scientifically directed and increasingly irresistible. He will be brought to sacrifice himself in a real world but for the sake of a verbal universe which has been fashioned for him. Okay. Um, man acts in a dream. He seeks other ends, those the incantational magic of propaganda proposes for him, than those he will really attain. 
the NT is expected to reach are known only to the manipulators of the mass subconscious and to them alone. The essence of propaganda is to act upon the human subconscious but to leave men the illusion of complete freedom. Um, and then Ilua goes on in that same section in the book to predict world domination by one nation. And he notes the role of public relations in the United States and says that gives the United States the advantage in that area. Um, and is it possible that propaganda is designed to assuage and disguise the spiritual needs of man, to hide from him his need for God and for salvation? So obviously if your conscience is clear because of propaganda, then um, you're not going to see your own sin and, and your, your need for God. So it's, it's kind of a false reality way of dealing with, a real, with the real problems of uh, sin and death and what have you. Okay, moving on to the, the subject of television in particular. So we've gone from a print-based culture to an image-based culture. And obviously at the center of that is television. Um, <clears throat> amusement techniques have jumped into the breach and taught man at least how to flee the presence of death. He no longer needs faith or some difficult asceticism to deaden himself to his condition. The movies and television lead him straight into an artificial paradise. Rather than face his own phantom, he seeks film phantoms into which he can project himself and which permit him to live as he might have willed. Let's see, Lul from the Technological Society. Um, separated from his essence, like a snail deprived of its shell, man is only a blob of plastic matter molded after the moving images. Okay, kind of an um, interesting image there. Just as the temple or the authority of the state presupposes a spiritual adhesion and hence propaganda, so the human condition under the regime of technique um, supposes the escapism which diversional techniques offer. One cannot but marvel at an organization which provides the antidote as it distills the poison. So if he sees the industrial society very much connected with the, the propaganda entertainment model um, and so one of them is um, distilling the poison and then the other one is providing the antidote. So it's in order to keep people adjusted to the way the world is, um, propaganda and public relations and what have you are necessary from his perspective. Uh, thanks to television, it is no longer necessary for members of a family to have anything at all to do with one another or even to be conscious of the fact that family relations are possible. Uh, television, because of its power of fascination and its capacity of visual and auditory penetration, is probably the technical instrument which is most destructive of personality and of human relations. Okay, he goes on to talk about sports. Uh, sport is tied to industry because it represents a reaction against industrial life. Moreover, sport is linked with the technical world because sport itself is a technique. Uh, it is worth noting that technicized sport was first developed in the United States, the most conformist of all countries. 
and you see sports is still probably the most popular, um, at least the biggest industry in the U.S. as uh, compared to other countries. And sport is an essential factor in the creation of the mass man. Okay, moving on. Uh, lots of these quotes come from Neil Postman's uh, fairly well-known book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which is written in 1985. Uh, Television gives us a conversation in images, not words. Uh, the news of the day is a figment of our technological imagination. The epistemology, or how we know what we know, created by television not only is inferior to a print-based epistemology, but is dangerous and absurdist. And this is a point that he makes kind of throughout the book, but he argues that you, it's not just a matter of content, it's a matter of how you're getting that content, and um, that it affects basically our brains or our minds differently, whether it comes from reading it or it comes from seeing it on television. Uh, the next quote there, television has achieved the status of metamedium, an instrument that directs not only our knowledge of the world, but our knowledge of ways of knowing as well. The problem is not that television presents us with entertaining subject matter, but that all subject matter is presented as entertaining. Uh, in watching television news, viewers are drawn into an epistemology based on the assumption that all reports of cruelty and death are greatly exaggerated and in any case, not to be taken seriously or responded to sanely. And the fundamental assumption of that world is not coherence, but discontinuity. And in a world of discontinuities, contradiction is useless as a test of truth or merit, because contradiction does not exist. And then he specifically talks about uh, Christianity on television. <clears throat> On television, religion, like everything else, is presented quite simply and without apology as an entertainment. Everything that makes religion an historic, profound, and sacred human activity is stripped away. There is no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, and above all, no sense of spiritual transcendence. On these shows, the preacher is pops. God comes out of second banana. Um, further, you shall wait a very long time indeed if you wish to hear an electronic preacher, uh, which is his name for a preacher on television, refer to the difficulties a rich man will have in gaining access to heaven. Okay. Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. <clears throat> when it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. The television screen itself has a strong bias toward a psychology of secularism. Uh, the danger is not that religion has become the content of television shows, but that television shows may become the content of religion. Television is, after all, a form of graven imagery far more alluring than a golden calf. Yeah, I think that's an interesting and, and perhaps very valid um, critique of televised Christianity. This, um, as far as, you know, what they actually do or methods that they use, um, this comes from Peter Sandman, 
Uh, he's the man who created Outrage Software, and uh, I've found this list in the book Trust Us, We're Experts by Sheldon Rampton and John Stauber. Uh, Peter Sandman's 12 Points to Minimize Outrage. Uh, emphasize Voluntary versus Coerced. Natural versus Industrial. Familiar versus Exotic. Not Memorable versus Memorable. Not Dreaded versus Dreaded. Chronic versus Catastrophic. Knowable versus Unknowable. Individually Controlled versus Controlled by Others. Fair versus Unfair. Morally irrelevant versus morally relevant. Trustworthy sources versus untrustworthy sources. In 12, uh, responsive process versus unresponsive process. And uh, quickly, number 11, trustworthy sources versus untrustworthy sources. This is a huge emphasis. Um, very rarely will you see mainstream media deal with a specific argument. It's always, um, well, you know, this statement was made by Ahmadinejad or, you know, the Russian leader or just a crazy website or, you know, conservative blog or what have you. <clears throat> they don't want to deal with the argument. They will deal with the source, uh, obviously implying that if it comes from the government or from mainstream media, that that somehow is a trustworthy source. All right, propaganda techniques, the third-party expert. If you turn on the cable news, you will see a steady stream of third-party experts, supposedly, um, you know, independent and neutral. Uh, in reality, they are usually being paid by someone to present a certain agenda. So whether it's a nuclear power expert, you know, saying, oh, the nuclear disaster at Fukushima is not that bad. Or if it's, uh, you know, a supposed military expert saying, oh, yes, we definitely need to invade Libya. Um, they're there to support a certain agenda. And if you, you know, they're usually presented as, oh, this person is from the, you know, whatever fake organization name they come up with. And if you dig a little bit, you'll find out that, that that organization was just created by a PR company, but it's not a real organization. Okay, uh, VNRs or video news releases. Uh, and this is lots of, especially local television news, is a, just a public relations video news release. Uh, if you see, you know, a medical segment and it's talking about a new drug study or what have you, uh, most likely that was created by the drug company, they wrote the script, they created the background video, they send it to the news station, and all a news station has to do is have a talking head read the script. So it's cheap for them, and obviously it's very beneficial to the drug company. Uh, Non-representational interviews, you could go to an airport, interview 10 people about the TSA, nine of them you know, hate the TSA and think it's ridiculous. One of them thinks, one of them says something like, oh, you know, it's a pain, but it's it's there to keep us safe. And, of course, they'll put that one on the news. So that's, they can kind of pick and choose the person on the street interview to fit whatever agenda they want to promote. Uh, the Potemkin Village technique, 
this is there. The Potemkin village was in the Soviet Union, and it was a fake village full of actors pretending to be happy villagers to show how well communism was working. Uh, then they would show, you know, visiting militaries and stuff that fake village. When in reality, there was mass starvation going on with the uh, real people in the countryside. So, and the, the same technique is used to, to kind of show, um, you know, a small segment that supposedly represents a larger whole, but in reality, it's it's fake. Ad hominem attacks, just attacking the person um, rather than attacking the argument. Straw man technique, uh, attacking a fake version of the argument. So, you know, oh, the conspiracy theorists, um, you know, don't believe we, the people who don't believe we landed on the moon think that the government had something to do with 9 11. Um, so you, they will take two totally different things, merge them together knowing that if people disagree with one, they'll probably disagree with the other one as well. Uh, everything being reduced to slogans, so people can say these things or repeat these things, uh, feel like they know what they're talking about, feel like they have a, a informed opinion, when in reality it's just a slogan. It's just an empty, um, small section of words. Uh, providing no context or a false context to a story. Uh, if you you could take any kind of isolated event, if you don't show accurate context, it's, it totally changes the perception of the event. And really, with the formats the way they are, if you've got a one-minute news story, how are you possibly, even if you have the best of intentions, how are you going to show um, true, accurate context? So this is... Again, we see the element that the format or the medium that these things are presented on uh, require a certain level of deception and propaganda. Okay. <clears throat> Talking again about propaganda in the church. Uh, this is from Elul. Christian ideology no longer inspires action. Christians are caught in a psychosociological mechanism that conditions them to certain practices despite their attachment to other ideas. Those ideas remain pure ideology because they are not being taken over by propaganda. And they are not taken over because they are not usable. In this fashion, such an ideology loses its reality and becomes an abstraction. It loses all effectiveness in relation to other ideologies being used by propaganda. <clears throat> so what Ilula is saying is that people will still believe in the tenets of Christianity but it will have no um, effect on their actual lives. And I think that is a an interesting explanation. If you, if you look at the church and, you know, you look at statistics that show that people who are in church, you know, have the same rates of different problems as, as people outside the church. Um, Ibu would say that everyone's under propaganda so Christians might hold Christian beliefs, but it's not impacting the way that they live. Um, church members are caught in the net of propaganda and react pretty much like everyone else. As a result, an almost complete dissociation takes place between their Christianity and their behavior. Because Christians are flooded with various propagandas, 
they absolutely cannot see what they might do and what would be effective and at the same time be an expression of their Christianity. Therefore, with different motivations and often with scruples, they limit themselves to one or another course presented to them by propaganda. They too take panorama of the various propagandas for living political reality and do not see where they can insert their Christianity into that fictitious panorama. <coughs> uh, the church's choice to make propaganda or not to make propaganda. If the church does not make propaganda, then while the churches slowly and carefully went man to Christianity, the mass media quickly mobilized the masses, and churchmen gained the impression of being out of step, on the fringes of history, and without power to change a thing. Uh, it seems that people manipulated by propaganda become increasingly impervious to spiritual realities, less and less suited for the autonomy of a Christian life. Yeah. If the church accepts propaganda, two important consequences follow. Christianity disseminated by such means is not Christianity. In fact, what happens as soon as the church avails itself of propaganda is a reduction of Christianity to the level of all other ideologies or secular religions. In other words, it's just another belief system. There's no actual power in it. In such moments, when acting through propaganda, Christianity ceases to be an overwhelming power and spiritual adventure and becomes institutionalized in all its expressions and compromised in all its actions. It serves everybody as an ideology with the greatest of ease and tends to be a hoax. In such times, there appear innumerable sweetenings and adaptations which denature Christianity by adjusting it to the milieu. Okay? And I would say if there's anything that would characterize kind of the at least media perception of modern Christianity it would be innumerable sweetenings and adaptations. Uh, one way to look, one way to tell whether the church has adopted Christianity, um, or sorry, that's a typo, whether the church has adopted propaganda is to look at the church's orientation towards the state and towards political power. Okay, because from um, Propaganda obviously always has a high view of the state because it's it's usually organized through the state. Um, so when you see uh, supposedly Christian organizations very much promoting um, war and other, other things that the government does, you have to ask yourself if those organizations have been given over to propaganda um, and has power being political power been chosen over truth. Okay. Um, little quotes. Uh, we can conclude that propaganda is one of the most powerful factors of de-Christianization in the world through the psychological modifications that it affects, through the ideological morass with which it has flooded the consciousness of the masses, through the reduction of Christianity to the level of an ideology through the never-ending temptation held out to the church. All this is the creation of a mental universe foreign to Christianity. And this de-Christianization through the effects of one instrument, propaganda, is much greater than through all the anti-Christian doctrines. So in other words, the, from Elul's perspective, the real danger is not uh, Christians being convinced to believe in a different uh, religion, it's that 
Christians still believe uh, in Christian ideology, but it has no effect on them. Um, that their actual lives are controlled by mass media and propaganda. Okay, my own personal conclusions from that. Uh, it's probably a good idea to read the Bible more and watch less TV uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and that, this was kind of my own, I guess, realization after digging into all this material, um, both before kind of looking into the more conspiracy stuff and then, then now looking at propaganda, is that it's amazing how much uh, the Bible can absolutely be trusted and how accurate it really is. Um, and it's it's a very kind of hip, trendy thing to say, oh, you know, the Bible was written by lots of men over hundreds of years, and there's all these contradictions and what have you. And um, if that's the view that you have, I challenge you to read the Bible for yourself and to, you know, if you see something that looks like a contradiction, explore it and ex explore what's actually going on there. Um, and I think in, you know, the gospel itself is very simple, but there's also um, an extremely high level of uh, complexity in the scriptures that uh, in many ways is kind of hidden from you if, if you're not reading uh, from position of faith, if you're, if you're reading more kind of as a critic. Um, second of all, true Christianity will not be relevant to a propagandized society. So if your church is being faithful uh, to the Bible and to true Christianity, you should not expect it to be the trendiest thing in town. Um, obviously, it should be bearing fruit. It should be having an impact on the people that are there and on the lives of the people that are exposed to it. But uh, don't expect it to be the talked about in the newspapers or on CNN or what have you. Uh, also, there will always be a remnant, no matter how kind of dark things get. God always keeps um, a people for for himself and uh, makes sure that people have access to the truth. And I think, um, you know, if, if you look at all the access that people have to the Bible now or to Bible, you know, study materials, it's kind of a best of times, worst of times thing. But there's uh, there's tons of material out there available. There's n there's really no excuse for um, you know not, not learning what God has to say. There is power in truth, although it is not political power. Um, again, the gospel is a is a hugely powerful thing, but it doesn't mean that. Uh, Christians need to take over the U.S. government and rule the way God intended. Um, I think that's a, that's a very false version of it. And whenever you mix Christianity and political power, it's the Christianity that gets corrupted. Uh, propaganda is temporary. All this, I think, truth is, etern truth is eternal. Propaganda is temporary. Um, you know, even though it, it seems like it's an overwhelming force right now. It is, it will go away someday. And all things, you know, people will one day be aware of what the truth actually is. Um, and then the question, how should ministry be judged successful? 
again, um, you know, I would recommend not picking the church based on how uh, entertaining it is or how well it fits in or how, you know, little offense it causes to the <laughs> the rest of society. Um, obviously, we need to to be evaluating things based on their adherence to the truth, to uh, the Bible. And Jesus Christ wins in the end. I think that is, it, it was kind of a dark presentation, but I want that message to be out there. Um, it's still just kind of a, a, a temporary problem, uh, this issue of propaganda and deception. Um, and Jesus Christ will win in the end. So if you're still listening through that whole thing, thank you very much. And um, I hope it spurs you to do some of your own research. And thanks a lot. Hey, Andrew, you want to give people uh, uh, an idea where they can get your book and that kind of thing? Okay. Um, my personal website is uh, eugenicswars.com. Uh, it's also available on amazon.com. Uh, the name of the book is The New World Order and the Eugenics Wars. And again, my name is Andrew Hoffman. So. And there, there should be a website, uh, masspropaganda.com. Uh, hopefully by the time you watch this, it's back up. But uh, if, if it's not, give it some time and hopefully it'll be back up there soon. All right, everybody, that was Andrew Hoffman. You can go to his website, eugenicswars.com. You can email him there. His email address is andrew at eugenicswars.com. If you've got any questions for him, it'd be, I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you about all this or anything else. Okay, so wanted to remind you real quick about the sleep paralysis testimonies. If you have a testimony where you've ended sleep paralysis with the name and authority of Jesus, I want to hear from you. It's really, really important that I do uh, consider making a video, consider making an audio, consider writing out your testimony. I need them badly. So go to uh, my website, nowheretorunradio.com. Contact me. If you need any help doing any of those things, let me know. We'll work out a way to, to make it happen. So thank you for your time. If you've got any questions, you can obviously go to the website, nowheretorunradio.com. Sign up for the email list, Facebook, Twitter. Hope to see you there. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time. <laughs>